Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership guitarist Eddie Martinez who has spent nearly 50 years elevating scores of rock, funk, hip-hop, and pop recordings and performances to higher levels of sonic splendor through his articulate and soulful lead and rhythm playing. Some of the dozens of artists he has worked with include LaBelle, Lenny White, Bernard Edwards, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, David Lee Roth, Don Blackman, Robert Palmer, Mick Jagger, Bootsy Collins, Tina Turner, Steve Winwood, and Shaka Khan. In 2018, he released a solo album called Akusua, uh, which Akosia actually is Akosia. All right, I appreciate that. Uh, it's brimming with first-rate hard rock and soft rock, with jazzy embellishments tossed in. Eddie, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well, Scott. Great to meet you here. And uh, wow, that was a that was a nice little blurb, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I botched the name of the record, but uh, what does that mean, yeah. actually? Akosia uh, is a Ghanaian word uh, in the dialect Tui, which is uh, a di one of the dialects in Ghana. And it means baby girl born on a Sunday. And uh, that's my wife's middle name. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's for her. Oh, beautiful. Nice. Thank Very you. Very good. So I understand you're coming to us from Portland today. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been here 20 years now. Moved from New York City to Portland in, uh, in 01. So, wow, 20 years, it's flown. Yeah, so uh, you must like it pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's worked out really well for me. Um, it's my, my, uh, my immediate family, um, most of my brothers moved here. I was the last one to move to Portland, uh, you know, uh, truth be told. And I was, uh, you know, just, I was doing it in the, in the city and just, I was so busy 
and uh, just went through a lot of different changes in my life. And, uh, uh, you know, I felt it was just time to get out of Dodge. And uh, my family said, come out here and give, give this, this place a shot. So I did, you know, and uh, it's worked out really well. And um, so I'm centered here, my family, my wife, I remarried about uh, five years ago. And, and uh, just, uh, it's a new chapter. And it's, it's turning out really, really well. Oh, that's great to hear. You know, uh, I know it gets a little cloudy and rainy there, but I know it's beautiful. And uh, I, you know, was up as far as uh, I think like Grants Pass and in that area, if you know where that is, and then yeah. was in Washington above it, but never actually to Portland. But I understand it's, you know, very, I don't know if bohemian is the right word, but it's very colorful and very interesting city. It's it's a very interesting state. It's it's, it's bucolic. It's stunningly beautiful in, in the summer months and everything. And it's just a uh, become you know september october november man it's like i'm i'm stuck in some film noir man you know it's kind of like i'm I'm trying to you know get out of casablanca man if you get my drift but yeah uh, (laughs) you know so uh yeah it's uh, and it's beginning now so you know i get a bit of doldrums you know and uh, just try to deal with that you know but it's been an ongoing process and it's it's coming along all right you know just you have to head to the sun every once in a while you know and i just i just get it you know, not necessarily the temperature, but I need to see blue skies in the sun, you know, and, and the sun, you know, so, but it, it's, it's, it's a charming place. And, you know, with all the controversy that's been going on over the last couple of years, uh, you know, it's really getting such a, a stereotype and it's, it's quite different from what you see on the news. And that's, that's unfortunate. It's, 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 uh, you know, I'm not saying it's without its problems, but, um, but uh, it is it is a charming place to live. And, and you know, unfortunately, the charm is kind of run off and what's being proffered daily, you know, uh, doesn't do it any good. So but it's a much nicer place than what people are seeing currently. And now, were you from New York originally or are you from Puerto Rico or were you from my originally? parents are from Puerto Rico? Um, I was born in, in uh, Queens, actually, in in. in Grew up in Jamaica, Ozone Park, uh, and Hollis, actually. So funnily enough, I did like a 360 when I when I work at Run DMC, you know, because they're from Hollis, you know, and a lot of musicians. I mean, some so many great musicians are from Jamaica, Queens, and um, and in some ways, I was in, in I was literally born there, but grew up mostly in the South Bronx. But uh, I I did full uh, full 360 because uh, once my music community kind of really developed. Most of my friendships uh, emerged from the South, uh, from, from uh, Queens and South Jamaica and Hollis and, you know, uh, from that area. So many great musicians, Lenny White and um, who's living out there, uh, Marcus Miller, Denzel Miller, Don Blackman. They're all from that area. Omar Hakim, you know, uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. Barry Johnson, one of our great bassists you know, and uh, all from Jamaica and Queens and everything. And they all had basements to practice in, you know. And, and uh, uh, the first, the, not the first band, but the, the first band that I was in that got a record deal was a band called Mother Night. And uh, I'd say, it was a big band of 10 pieces. And I'd say a good seven, seven of the 10 guys were from Jamaica and Ozone Park and Hollis. And uh, that, that's how they learned how to play. and and cultivated their styles and everything. So, you know, Queens is, holds a lot of significance uh, to me in terms of the arc of my career. Yeah, I got a whole new appreciation for what a rich musical hotbed that area is by just doing this show. Cause you know, I had Barry Johnson on and I've had other guys on like Tom Brown and so many that mm-hmm. have their roots there and just, you know, you hear them talk about it. Uh, just sounds like an amazing place to, to come up musically. Oh yeah, it it uh, just being able to get in your basement and jam and learn and practice uh, without having to deal with like you know if if I was going into the city to rehearse with a band or whatever you'd have to I'd have to get on a train get into the city and go up uh, you know up a a building and plug into a you know a rented amp or a used amplifier that's like on its last legs and you know and the cats they would have their place of rehearsal where it would be, whether it was daily or weekly or whatever, you know, and I would make the track out there because uh, when I first started playing with Mother Night, I was living in, in the South Bronx and I would, you know, two trains and a bus. And uh, it's really amazing the stuff you do when you're a kid, you know, and you just- That's a you commitment, know, yeah. 
indeed, it, it is a commitment. And uh, but it was well worthwhile. So, um, Eddie, what attracted you to the guitar, though? And, uh, you know, who, you know, I'm assuming, uh, and I'm wearing this kind of in your honor, I'm assuming uh, he's one of your influences, uh, but oh, who, are, who are your biggest influences? My, well, uh, you know, really the core of what the spark was the Beatles. And, you know, the proverbial, I saw them on Ed Sullivan, and I did. And um, it was seismic. And in terms of just the, the, the sound of the electric guitars being used in a little bit of a different way. Um, there was a, a pop sensibility that was so fresh and so new, it really caught my virgin ears. You know, it was just really, really amazing. And, um, and indebted to that as, you know, being my spark. And, and then a lot of, the, the, lot of the, the rock that came from England as well, and the blues rock, you know, whether it was Cream or Purple Harem, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Beck, Clapton, uh, Peter Green, you know, all the, all, the, all the greats. And then, you know, obviously, you know, then I gravitated towards BB and Albert and, and, and really got to the source of, of, of their inspiration, you know. So it's really interesting. It's a, a, circuitous, a circuitous process when, when you think about the trek of, um, you know, British musicians um, interpreting the blues as they did because they were inspired by BB and Albert and Buddy Guy and all the greats, you know, and then it comes back to you and then you realize, well, let me go back to the source and, and you kind of like balance those two, but I'm still very, very much impacted by what the, the Brits did to, to uh, rock and blues. I mean, my first concert was Hendrix and, and you know, and he, his fame began in England and, and he, was, he was just like a space blues player, you know, and, uh, not just, but really just re reinterpreted the instrument, reinvented the instrument in the modern context, you know? And so that was my first concert. And um, it, it just altered everything for me in terms of perspective and possibilities and all that stuff. And then um, the second concert I saw was uh, Jeff Beck in Central Park with the first band with Rod Stewart, who I eventually uh, worked with years later. Uh, with Rod Stewart and Ron Wood, and you know that band, and they just they, they just killed. I saw Zeppelin very very early on, um, probably that very same summer. Um, they played Central Park as well. Um, so these things had an indelible impact on me. But seeing Hendrix was just he was just incandescent. And I'm happy to say that I, I saw him three times live. Um, mm. Really, really special. Each one was very interesting. The first one was at Singer Bowl, um, and uh, which I think is on YouTube. The Singer Bowl concert is on YouTube. It's kind of raw and stuff in terms of how it was, it was filmed and everything, but it's there. Um, then I saw him in Central Park after he was, he was uh, busted in Toronto, I believe. Um, and uh, it was very interesting. He was on the bill with Buddy Miles Express. That was, that was a great show, uh, but you can tell he was very kind of, he was introspective. He was really kind of, um, he wasn't um, the extrovert, the, you know, the, you know, all the craziness that he had been known for relative to playing behind his head or behind his back or all that stuff. That was, that really wasn't there. He was just playing. He was playing really well that night, but it was really, um, you can tell there was, a. Um, uh, he seemed a bit more serious and a bit more solemn uh, in that show. And um, then the last of my son was at Randall's Island and, uh, that was a good show, but I think it was my least favorite out of the three. Um, uh, and uh, it was the least favorite. I think, um, I don't know. I think I, I got the feeling that, um, oh, it's really hard for me to put it in my word, in words, but I just felt that that was, it, 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 although he was incandescent in, in each one of those shows, um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't to the degree of the earlier uh, stuff, Scott. He was getting a little burned out at that point, or it very well could have been. Uh, um, you know, it's really interesting if you you think about the different iterations of the band. Uh, I never saw the band of Gypsies live, but I did see him with Billy Cox and with Mitch Mitchell. You know, so I saw them twice with Noel Redding uh, and Mitch Mitchell, and one time with uh, with Billy Cox and and Mitch. And um, I I would have loved to have heard. Um, 
Billy with with uh, Jimmy and Mitch like a few years earlier. I think that really would have been really interesting because there was something uh, something um, uh, there was something dangerous about the early versions of uh, the experience that I kind of liked. Um, uh, it was uh, it was. Mitch was taking more of a kind of like an Elvin Jones kind of approach to the drums. So Jimmy and, and Jimmy and, and Mitch were kind of like in the cosmos and Noel Redding was kind of like um, very nebulous, not nebulous, but he was very kind of transparent in, in that kind of chemistry. And I, I would love to have heard uh, Billy in that context, which with more of a defined punch to his sound. Mm-hmm. Well, I never, unfortunately, I never got to see uh, Hendrix or Zeppelin for that matter. But uh, man, it's so cool that you were able to. And uh, oh man, I consider myself really fortunate to, you know, fortunate to have uh, seen seen those great acts. I never saw the Beatles live though. Some friends of mine had, but I've seen McCartney a couple of times, and that was really amazing. Now, I I have seen Jeff Beck and. Um, we didn't mention him, but Stevie Ray Vaughan and, you know, Johnny Winter and so many greats, but. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so, man, going to Fillmore was amazing uh, as a kid. Uh, seeing Johnny Winter, B.B. King, Elvin Bishop, uh, the Kinks, uh, you know, Paul Butterfield. I mean, on and on and on. And it was just amazing. That was a really, I, I think, the best sounding room. And I would say probably the Beacon would be next, but nothing sounded like the Fillmore East. That was just there's something very special about that room. The acoustics were incredible. So on your end, though, you know, were you self-taught and, you know, how did you kind of progress on guitar? Well, my my younger brother, Roberto, was given a, a plastic guitar for Christmas and um, he never played it. And uh, I just started plunking around on this thing and I just started. Had this kind of connection with the with the instrument and I asked my father uh, if he'd be able to get me a guitar and you know you know coming from humble beginnings you know uh, I had to wait quite a while for him to save up the shekels to buy my first guitar but he did he bought my first acoustic guitar which I literally played until it fell apart and um, and then he bought me an electric guitar and an amplifier and uh, then I was on my own but uh, th those were really instrumental and really it just transformed everything for me. I was just uh, obsessed with the instrument. And, and although I was singing in bands, I hadn't been playing in bands as a musician professionally. And by the, by the time I was 14, I was singing. By the time I, I guess I was 15 or 16, I was playing guitar and uh, doing gigs. And how would you describe your style, you know, your signature style and you know has it changed a lot from those early years to you know more current times well i you know i consider myself a student still that's the thing about this instrument is that it, it's 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 so humbling and the moment you think you know it all you really don't because the guitar just seems to smack you in the face with the stark reality of you don't know shit you know so um uh, and, and that's what I love about it. It keeps you humble. You know, it's like a metaphor for life in a lot of ways. And um, so, um, uh, yeah, how's my, how's my style changed since the beginning? I think that earlier on, albeit I was listening, you know, to a lot of the pop and the rock stuff, when I, when I, I, was, I was playing in top 40 bands. So you get to, you know, understand what the current hits of the day was and playing them. And it's, it's something to be really learned about those things. Uh, you know, even if it's from a, from a songwriting process or just being versatile, because being versatile in New York is really, really important. And once you break into the session scene, versatility is, is really important. The most important thing is getting it done and getting it done quickly. And, um, and that's, to me, that was the credo in New York City, just, just get the shit done. You know, and um, and then as you develop and you're blessed with having records that have done well and, you know, then then you can start really kind of incorporating some other sounds, um, being a, maybe a bit more um, 
sensitive or uh, to to uh, you know the, the sounds that you're 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 providing for projects and, and you know it kind of evolves as the arc of your career evolves. Um, so you know it, it it evolves from you know gee I wonder what the amplifier is going to be at the studio is it going to be you know you know it's going to be a twin reverb is it going to be a deluxe reverb is it going to be you know you know something that's you know, on its lips and just not really putting out what you need to have, you know, for, for the track or, uh, you know, as you develop and you get a name for yourself, then you cart your gear or you have your own gear and somebody set, sets it up and make sure that all the amps, okay, I want my rack and I want all my tweed amplifiers. I want all the vintage stuff as well as the, the new stuff. And you then, you then you have a different type of menu and, and then you can pull from, oh, I think I'll use my tweed deluxe on this, you know, and I think it's going to suit this just fine because the first rule is that there are no rules. So um, it's only about what, you know, what is applicable to the, to the song and the, the track that you're performing on. Um, and so uh, Mother Night, you know, how, how did you connect with those guys? And it was such a um, varied band in terms of the scope and sound and styles. And it was a real melting pot of all of that so you know what was the um vision for it and you know what was your experience with it well man that was i was i was in high school uh senior year and uh now rogers lived around the corner from me and um he said eddie this is this band that's looking for a guitar uh, call this number up and you know uh, and, and inquire so i did and i called him, i think it was ron taylor he was who was a trumpet player and uh and he told the rest of the guys and they invited me down and i took two trains and a bus out to <laughs> the south ozone park to arnold ramsey's house and uh auditioned I, I i think i had a big muff and a wah-wah pedal and plugged into whatever amp that was there and and uh then you know, they, they liked the way I played and they liked what I was contributing. And, and, uh, and there was like a higher education for me um, because it was so varied, the music. We were doing a lot of, it was a horn band. So we had five horns and we were doing all the blood, sweat and tear stuff, all the Chicago music. We were doing James Brown. We were doing Dyke and the Blazers, which to me, that was like, you know, James Brown and Dyke and the Blazers. I mean, in terms of the funk, that stuff was just so nasty. It was just so nasty. And it was like really getting into the discipline of playing one pattern and never swaying away from it. No matter what else happens, you have to kind of keep that thing locked. And that, that kind of discipline is what really, to me, is what the funk is all about. It's like, you know, just locking into what your thing is and never deviating uh, from it as long as it's swinging. You know, and uh, to me, that was that was really an incredible education. And the horn players were all listening to, you know, a lot of the jazz stuff. So there was a lot of Coltrane being listened to and the standards were always being discussed because, you know, to me, those things are fundamental. You know, for me as a musician, you know, I mean, I look back on 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 understanding, you know, the the, the beauty of a standard in 32 bars or whatever, you know, it's whether it's Cole Porter or Gershwin or, you know, uh, Billy Strayhorn or something like that, you know, it's just, it's, there's something fundamental about that, you know, so I had that and was really um, important, important. Uh, but as, as we, after we disbanded, cause we did one album and we did a single for, for Buddha records. After we disbanded, I really tried to focus on bands that were more uh, guitar centric because I, I felt I had that kind of foundational understanding of, of pocket playing and rhythm playing, that I wanted to do things that were, compre that were a bit more comprehensive and that, that uh, uh, covered like full front, I call it full frontal guitar, you know, where the guitar is just like right in your face and integral in a different way to the, to the, to the music. And, and that's how it just evolved for me. It just evolved from going, you know, uh, listening to the rock stuff, getting into the funk and seriously living it, and playing it and then coming back out into the into the rock uh thing and the pop thing and just you know when you're playing pop music if you have a good comprehension of chords and changes and voicings and how to 
how to how to create a voicing that sits in a track uh, in a different way. It's really so fundamental because there's something so special about playing stuff that's inside the track that maybe the consumer, maybe the end consumer isn't particularly hearing, but all the musicians that are hearing are listening to that inside shit. And to me, that's where a lot of the magic is that creates a bed for all the other stuff that goes on top. Also, uh, Eddie, if it wasn't there, they might notice that, not consciously, but in you know their appreciation and enjoyment of the whole piece. Totally agree. Totally, totally agree. Uh, and it's really because if it's not if it's not foundational there, you know, the, the track is not going. If if you know, it's just like anything. If there's not a good foundation to a home, you know what I mean. It's not gonna. It's not gonna last. It's not gonna last a, a or, century. Or, or when you taste some kind of stew or something, you're like, there's some ingredient missing. You know, it's just... yeah, yeah. There's no roux in here. Where's the garlic? Where's the salt? And you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, yeah, it's so true. I mean, you know, there are a million metaphors to kind of like convey that that thing that's kind of foundational to to uh, to the music. So yes. Yeah, that's really a salient point. Uh, you know, uh, the fact that you know, um, you know, if if that magic isn't happening underneath, you know, it's not going to be magical once all the other stuff is on. You know, so, well, why why did Mother? Well, first of all, did Mother Night uh, get out and actually do any shows? Uh, did you open up for any other acts? Yeah, we opened up for. I mean, here's a bill for you. We opened up for Emerson Lake and Palmer. We did about a, a you know a few gigs opening up for Emerson Lake and Palmer. Talk about a culture shock, you know. It's really it was cool though because th those those guys were very cool, and uh, it was it was fun to open up for them. Albeit, I did feel like a real kind of dichotomy, a cultural dichotomy from the from the audience perspective, you know, because they're they you know the ostensibly most of the people there want to hear, you know, they, they came to hear listen to this one of the really kind of seminal prog rock groups of all time, you know? And I, I loved it, man, because I was into that shit, you know? And uh, they sounded amazing. And, I, you know, even from a, from a gear perspective, what they were doing was really, was very, very cool. It was very, very cool. I mean, uh, Greg Lake was playing out of, he was playing his bass out of phase linear, you know, power amplifiers, the voice of theater speakers with horns. So his bass sounded like the biggest piano you know, it sounded like the bass piano strings. It just, it was enormous. And they had incredible sound and facility. It was really cool. And we, we were just like, a, you know, we kicked, we kicked ass too. We just, we were just ourselves, which is all you need to be, you know? So it was, it was fun. We did a, we did a handful of gigs with them. And so uh, viewers and listeners know, what year was that album out? Oh man, that album came out in uh, spring of 72, you know, gosh. That was a long time ago. And why did you guys disband? Well, we had we cut a deal with uh, Columbia Records, and um, you know when I think about it, you know our first single was "Senor Rogers" to Julie Nixon. You know, it's like <laughs> so. I mean, I mean, it was like really kind of controversial from that perspective. Uh, we we played we we played, we did a lot of shows in in New York City, and we we're quite popular there. And um, and then I guess the you know uh, Columbia didn't pick up the option for the for the next record, and um, then we we got a deal for a single to release a single uh, with Buddha Records, and we released this tune called Say Brother, and it's like the first tune that I ever composed for the band, and um, and uh, Skip uh, Foster McPhee, uh, um, he uh, or Skip as we call him affectionately. Uh, he wrote the lyrics, uh, Skip McPhee, and um, wrote the lyrics to the tune. And it was funky ass tune, man. Um, you know, uh, it was it was it made some noise in the city. Well, you know, it's a great record. Um, Thank I you. enjoy it, and I know some guys that just really, uh, you know, it's among their favorites. Guys like Jimmy Hazel, and uh, just adore oh, that record. Oh, Jimmy, you know? oh man, yeah, you know, it's Jimmy. It's like first time I met Jimmy. He's like, you know. He was talking about that more so than the other stuff that I'd done after, you know, and uh, he's a dear friend and a killer guitarist and really um, he's a great composer, too. He's a very, very, very uh, his compositions are astute. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy him. Uh, and just a great guy, you know? Yeah. Um, so after after that, moving moving on a bit from that, uh, you know, you connected with LaBelle somehow. Um, 
How does yeah. that come to be? Well, the cattle call audition. Um, I was just talking about it the other day. I think someone either called me up and gave me a number, or I think I may have seen something in the Village Voice and made an appointment to go out, you know, to, to audition. And I tell you, the Village Voice back in those days, man, you just go in the music classifieds, man. And, you know, it's like, it was such a different time. <laughs> it's just really such a different time that you're getting, you know, you're getting print media and you're scrolling down to see who's holding auditions. And, you know, really harkens to literally, a, you know, uh, you know, uh, another generation or two. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's what I did. And a lot of a lot of the the, the gigs, you know, you, you'd go on them and you audition, you give it a shot. You know, some you win, some you don't win. And, you know, it's it's part of all having, you know, thick skin. You have to have thick skin in this business. You know, um, you can't take things personally. You know, it just doesn't it doesn't pencil that way. It does not work. And so what was your first uh, experience with them? playing uh oh uh this this uh, the first experience with labelle was uh, this audition and oh man they were just like every guitar player in new york had to have been there and uh i had uh you know plugged in and played um i only had one guitar at the time and it just it just been refretted so i'm getting the guitar which when you refer to guitar it, it really feels different and it was really the first guitar i i uh, first good guitar I really owned, and it was the first time I ever had it refretted. So I went straight from the Luthiers, uh, uh, you know, shop to the audition. And uh, but everything turned out well. I plugged in, cranked it up, played. It was just myself. I just you know I just just wanted to be me, and played what I felt uh, was going to work with the music. And um, they asked me to come back the next day. I came back, and then we had a uh, it was between me and a couple of other guitarists and. Uh, I was the last guy standing, you know, and uh, and I was I was happy about that because you know the other plays were really good. And did you first do uh, shows with them or go right into a record? Uh, shows, uh, rehearsed with them for for not too long because they were getting ready to go out on tour. And the, the beginning of the tour, uh, we flew to the West Coast to do some TV shows. So we did the Share Show, we did Soul Train, we did. Um, Oh man, we did a few. We did uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was a, a pretty popular show back in the day, and so we did those. And then we started our tour from I think from the West Coast and worked our way uh, eastward. And uh, they they toured a lot. We toured we toured all over the country with LaBelle, and uh, the tremendous uh, performers, artists, a powerful uh, powerful women that just really. Boy, they, you know, they, they hit that stage and there was an energy and a power about them that was really uh, impressive and always goosebumps every night with Patty and Nona and Sarah. They just delivered that, you know, there was always there was always a moment in every show that transcended and it got very emotional and the, 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 the goosebumps just start, you know, appearing. And mm. uh, those are good memories. Of course, we lost Sarah a few months ago. So, uh, you know, RIP for yeah. her. Oh yeah, that came as a shock to me. I mean, um, that came as uh, came as actually Jimmy. Actually, Jimmy sent me a note, and I I, I didn't know. I, I, that was the first I had heard of it, and uh, it just broke my heart. I hadn't seen Sarah in, in quite a long time. I think we did have a, um, uh, a an exchange via via uh, Facebook, uh, maybe a year or so ago, if I'm not mistaken. But she was a dear dear person you know wonderful human being fun fun fact around that time the mid 70s when you were working with them my sister was working at epic records so uh oh, really? yeah she was in the uh, publicity department over there wow yeah wow. so Amazing. i remember i remember that chameleon record cover with the silver outfits and uh, yeah it was right around that time and uh did you yeah, have to that was the first um big record session after mother night that i that i had done that was really that was really uh, kind of different for me uh because i was on the west coast we, we did that recording in san francisco at wally hyder's uh i think most of the recording was done there with david rubinson who was producing and um and you know it's like you know i, I got Wawa Watson to the, you know, to one side of me and I have Ray Parker Jr. to the, I mean, I mean, those guys are legends. It was really wonderful for me to see how those guys did it because they were, 
they were really doing it. I was kind of, I was just starting out, but they were really they were like they were names, you know, on the West Coast, and they were they were doing a lot of dates, and I could see why because they both had such a unique um, gifts and talent on the instrument of uh, versatility, musicality, rhythm, just tremendous guitarists, you know. And uh, to this day, I mean, Ray's Ray's still killing it, you know. I know Wawa passed a few years ago, and it was so sad, but. I mean, his work was, it was so, it was so different. You know, it's like, he's playing this L5 and he's got a, you know, he's got an Echoplex and a, and a, like a Maestro Fuzz or something like that. And he's getting all these sounds. It was just really like, it was like a six string percussion section almost at times. And it was so, it was so musical. It was so in the pocket. And Ray was playing his gold top Les Paul through a Princeton or something like that, a really small Fender you know, and he got that kind of skank, scratchy thing, but also also he was able to get all those chordal kind of things that he does. So he's really a great guitarist, really. Mm. Amazing. So that for me as a kid seeing that, you know, it's kind of like you, you get to see how it's done and how they comport themselves in a recording environment. It's very, very cool. It's kind of like, there's almost kind of like a, um, almost like a top gun mentality, like a fighter pilot mentality. There's this, you know, there's this, there's this, calm of nothing can phase you you know and uh, you're prepared for whatever comes and uh you know those guys are masters at that yeah i mean ray parker i still find out he played on some tracks that i wasn't aware of and it's just amazing the extent oh. of of material that he's on yeah his versatility is incredible really mm -hmm. so were you playing uh mostly leads for them or rhythm or both or uh, with uh, LaBelle? Yeah. Well, we had another guitarist, uh, Rev Batts, Edward Batts, who um, he, he was the rhythm guitarist and he had a really unique style. Didn't play with a pick, he played with his fingers, but he was funky and he just had a real kind of greasiness and it was great. And, and you know, obviously we're always, most of the time we're both playing rhythm, you know, so I'm just trying to find parts and stuff like that to complement what, what Rev was doing. And that was great fun. You know, it's really great fun. Did you get to dress up in those wild costumes too? No, man. We were not, <laughs> we um, the first tour that we did, we just wore solid black. I think one of the previous tours before I was in the band, uh, some of the band members they did have some of that kind of silver stuff. But um, in in the bands that I played in, uh, I was just wearing um, basic black slacks, black shoes, uh, like a black uh, pullover kind of shirt kind of thing. And then I think uh, for the chameleon tour, they lightened us up and we had kind of like, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of like a, a, a beige of some sort. <laughs> I used to make jokes. I said, man, this, this shit looks like the sanitation outfit for the New York sanitation department. <laughs> it was I'm sure that's what they were going for. <laughs> <laughs> it was really kind of blah, you know, <laughs> but you know, Hey, you know, we were just kids. I mean, we were in our early twenties and, it just wanted to just uh, you know play. That's the only did, word. Did, did the Labelle uh, during that time open up for say like Parliament Funkadelic or any of those kind of bands? Did you get to share stages with any of those yeah, types of acts? Yeah, yeah, there were there was um, I recall us doing uh, being on the bill with uh, Brothers Johnson. I recall being um, actually um, the Bicentennial. I think the uh, uh, 1976 the Bicentennial. I think it took place on a weekend. So um, that weekend, I think we, we did three cities over that weekend. We, we did something out of, out of the country. We, we went up to Toronto to do a, a television special. Then we, then we flew down to Detroit and we played the Pontiac Dome, which was up until that point, that was like one of the largest venues in, you know, in the country. And we did this big bill. I think uh, the Ohio players, um, Rufus, there were there were at least a half dozen bands on the bill, and uh, and and uh, yeah, that was cool. We did we did some we did some co-billing with some with some bands. Oh, the, the, one of the coolest ones was we played the Gator Bowl, and Black Oak Arkansas was on the bill, and the Who uh, headlined, and I think we were second bill, and that was a thrill seeing the Who for the first time because I'm a I'm a huge Who fan. So they were so good. It was it was so good. It was crazy. I mean, they opened up with Bob O'Reilly, and they just sounded 
those three pieces were making um, majestic noise. It was amazing. That's so cool. When, you know, back then they were still, you know, mixing up some of the genres, you know, and yeah. not just pigeonholing oh, as much. Absolutely. I mean, I, I used to see bills as diverse as like um, Seals and Crofts. Um, then uh, what was the name of that group? Uh, uh, Ambergris. They had a they had a um, a tune called Apricot and Honey, and then Purple Harem. It's kind of like you know, it's just like all over the place. You know, Love the Kinks, Savoy Brown. It was just like a Bloodwind Pig and, and Chicago Transit Authority opening up for Johnny Winter at the time of uh, Johnny Winter and you know. Um, oh no, no, actually the second album, the second album, um, the three sided, the two LP but three sides of music uh, uh, record. Yeah, that was that was a great album, you know, really great. And he did the entire album, you know, Memory Pain and all those tunes and just really killer shit. So I have, uh, I see in your credits that you played with Clear also on their Winners album. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I did. I, play, I did a solo on that. I think I remember Woody. Oh, his name was Woody. Woody oh, I forget his last name. But um, uh, yeah, I played on that record. I remember that session. Yeah, uh, they were a, a, a you know flash for a little bit. They I uh, had some of their guys on the, on the show a while ago, but uh, they had some good tunes. You know, um, uh, Mick Murphy, uh, you know, before System, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, he was he was a part of that a part of that band as well. That's right. That's right. And then uh, Curtis Below. Uh, so that was really your first foray into hip hop, right? With yeah, really interesting. Um, I was I was playing with Lenny White at the time, um, and uh, and Jimmy Braylauer, uh, and uh, who else was on that session? I think Denzel Miller, who's an, an incredible genius musician, who has been uh, not only a dear friend but a mentor of mine through the years. Uh, he, I think, he participated on that as well, but. Um, we did this track called these are the breaks and um so it i think that was a demo and then the demo they finally got to go in and do it for real and i was out on tour and i couldn't do the session but john torpey is playing my guitar part you know so um yeah i'm glad that they kept the part because i thought it was a good part so but you're playing on his 1980 record, right? Yeah, yeah. There's an LP that came that that we worked on a few years later, and I played uh, I played a lot on that record. You know, I still have it on vinyl somewhere around here. <laughs> and the breaks, you know, I think there's some argument whether it was Rapper's Delight or the breaks was one or two in terms of sort of claim to fame as being the first. But I think maybe the breaks came just right after Rapper's I Delight. I think so too. I think so too. Um, yeah. Uh, I seem to think about uh, Rapper's Delight before um, Kurt's thing. Yeah. But it was cusp of all that stuff, you know? Well, how'd you feel about rap at that point? I mean, it was totally new and a lot of people were, most people were dismissing it as a fad. I mean, did you think it was something real right off the bat? Um, that's a great question. Um, I knew it was different. And I really also sensed like almost... Um, a cultural aesthetic kind of uh, line of demarcation. Um, when I think about it really retrospectively, um, back in those days, I was, I was just a, a musician, a session musician, just starting out trying to get a name, trying to, uh, trying to get in the door, you know, so I, I wouldn't turn down anything that was that it plus when you're working with guys like Jimmy Braylauer and you know, and uh, and Denzel Miller and Larry Smith, these these guys before the rap thing began. These we did sessions. We played in bands together. I mean, I, re I remember playing in a band with Larry, Larry Smith and Omar Hakim and Denzel Miller for this artist named Jay Mason, who was on on uh, Buddha Records. You know, uh, you know, you know, around that time, maybe a few years before that. You know, maybe a year or two before, actually. You know, so these are guys that they, you know, Larry. Larry Smith, God rest his soul, he, he, he jumped into it with a zeal 
And he, it wasn't a contrivance for him. It was something that he really, really believed in. And that's why he had such great success with it. And he really found his voice. He really found his lane with, uh, with hip hop. Well, it's just so good that some guys like that did bring some good musicality to at least, you know, the first several years of hip hop. Yeah. You know, if you think of, you know, King of Rock and, and Rockbox, I mean, you know, it, the guitar, there's a musicality to the guitar parts. They're very hooky. And yes, it's the, you know, it's the convergence of rap. I, I never, Scott, it, I, I, I never thought, I felt it was a good day's work. And I, th I felt it was really, really good. I had no idea that it was going to be this iconic seismic shift thing with the merging of rap and hip hop. I, at that time, I didn't think, I just thought it was a really good day's work. And it was really a lot of fun working with my friend. And it was musical. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, Larry just let me do what I do. You know, says, Eddie, it's put some of your shit on there. You know, and I just, it's ostensibly, it's a DMX drum machine. You know, the guy's rapping and Jam Master Jay doing his deal and Larry's bass and, and my guitars. That's, you know, that's really what, what it is and what it was. You know, so there's a purity to that as well. Well, I got to tell you sort of where I was coming from at that time, because uh, it's part of who I am uh, regarding music. So, you know, I was always a guy who had appreciation for the rock and the funk and bringing it together to me was just sort of the ultimate. And, you yep. know, that's why I love so much of the Funkadelic and Prince and that kind of thing. So I gravitated to hip hop right away because it had funk as such a foundational element of it. And when they brought in the rock too, like Run DMC did, I was just, you know, like all about that. I was like, this is what, what should happen. And I thought that it was definitely the next big thing and that it would really be sort of a whole genre itself of that merger, which didn't really happen. But uh, just, you know, the stuff you did with them was phenomenal. And I think it's, you know, really a landmark uh, in, in hip hop and music in general. Yeah, thank you. You know, and then who would have funk, as they say in New York, <laughs> you know, but I, I think um, I think when I really realized that it was really making some noise is a friend of mine, Steve Stevens, a great guitarist from Billy Idol. He left a message on my voice machine, uh, you know, back in the day when <laughs> you had a little voice machine, you know, that connected to your phone. And um, and, you know, he left the message. He said he, he was in London or something like that. And he said the run DMC thing is blowing up. And he's, you know, he said, man, is that you on there? It's killing, you know. And, and when I heard that message from him, I, I said, man, this thing must be really blowing up, you know. And the rest is history. I mean, it just, it just blew up. Rockbox being the first one. And then also yeah. the fact that it got video play too. And you had your little cameos in it, uh, which was cool. Yeah, it was cool, man. You know, on top of Larry's Cadillac, they had the spray paint stuff all over it. It was, it was, it was just a, a fun day. It was so, um, uh, it was, it was, it was hilarious doing that, you know. And um, Professor Erwin Corey, man, I see him on Ed Sullivan, you know, and he does the spoken word at the beginning and all that. I mean, I was talking with him. He was a very cool cat, man. That was really, I just love his soliloquy at the front, man. It's just like so incongruous you know what i mean it's just so kind of like from left field and i love that kind of juxtaposition because that music was a juxtaposition you know yeah it's and then a, the next one had larry bud melman in it uh yes you know, <laughs> yeah yeah on mj's glove and all that shit man yeah. it's like oh man it's, it's like really you know really kind of iconoclastic and said you know move over this is the shit you know it was very cool it was fun so did, to what extent did you get to work with uh, Rick Rubin and, and spend time with, uh, you know, Run and DMC and J, uh, Jam Master J and those guys? Well, I, um, the first sessions were really interesting uh, for, for Rockbox. And um, uh, I think they had their raps on there. There was the, uh, the beatbox, the, DM, uh, the DMX machine and, um, and Larry's bass. And, and then, you know, I, I worked with Larry that entire you know day i don't know three four hours just started stacking up and building up guitars and and stuff and when the cats came back they didn't they weren't really feeling it <laughs> they, they thought it was kind of like covering up their their rap and everything thankfully you know um 
Larry and, um, and, uh, you know, um, uh, Ron's brother, you know, um, uh, uh, the, their manager just like, said, no, they just, they were, they were just, uh, you know, adamant that this is, this is the way, this is the path. This is the way, this is, this is really good. This is the shit, you know? And, uh, and I, I guess they were a bit reluctant at first, but you know, when it came out, man, it was over. It was over. It was so different. It was so fresh. And then they said, well, let's do this again. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then we did, uh, you know, we did King of Rock. And I remember seeing, um, I remember seeing Rick Rubin on the on the sessions for uh, for King of Rock. He was in the room when I was doing guitars on that. And you know, I haven't seen him since that day. Wow, I haven't seen him since that day. I would love to see him and just say hello to him, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, the rest is history. What a what an incredible career he's had as a producer and everything. It's amazing, you know. Yes, and yeah. uh, big big ears, and uh, you know, he's got a great. 360 of 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 uh, music and you can tell it you know and, and i saw the thing he did uh, on hulu with paul mccartney I loved it yeah I was, I was just riveted it was really wonderful yeah it made me say oh there's so many guys i want to see them do this with also you know yeah. like yeah do, do one with stevie wonder and do one with you know so many guys oh, wouldn't that, oh that would be that could be an ongoing series because I would love to, you know, listen to Stevie about, you know, the arc of his career from the early Motown days to when he took that sabbatical and then he came back with Talking Book and then that whole kind of enormous seismic pivot for him with, with you know, you know, the albums that follow Intervisions and, you know, all that. Oh, man, Songs in the Key of Life. Man, amazing. Yeah. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.